Welcome back to another episode of Product Love, hosted by Eric Bodick, serial entrepreneur and co-founder of Pendo, a product experience platform. Every day we use different kinds of products to help us go about our lives. Behind each product is a product manager who has carefully built something they hope their users love. This is Product Love, the podcast where we interview product managers and explore the craft of product management. This week on Product Love, I sat down with Sachin Reki, the CEO of Nochoy. So Nochoy is a collaborative notes application, and it's clear that Sachin is really a solid product management leader. He's been in the tech field for quite a long time. He has a clear vision of what product management has been, what it currently is, and how it can transform. Today's conversation encapsulated both the art and science of product management, as well as ways to think about how the role can be divided. One area I loved in particular was our discussion of the types of product managers. Sachin talks about three different types of product managers, builders, tuners, and innovators. And depending on where your company is in its maturity and your product's maturity, you might need a different type of product manager or composition of team members. So clearly Sachin knows how to break down the field of product management into something that's understandable and consumable. And all of this conversation got me to thinking about how well do we adjust our team's composition based on the stage of our products? Do we do a good job moving strong builders to a new product or do we keep them on their product even as it matures and potentially requires a different type of PM? Well, let me know if you agree and let me know what you think of Sachin's frameworks and models at ebodok at pendo.io or you can reach me at ebodok on Twitter. So this week I want to highlight one of our sponsors, Pendo, who has an upcoming conference Pendemonium. So Pendemonium is a 2-day conference for innovators, collaborators and anyone product obsessed. You'll have an opportunity there to engage with remarkable product leaders and dig into topics around product-led growth, design and success. It's coming up soon, September 10th and 11th in Raleigh, North Carolina. I'll be there. You should be too. To learn more, Google Pendemonium 2019 or visit Pendo at www.pendo.io. Welcome lovers product. Today I am here with Sachin, who is the CEO of Nochoy. Sachin, why don't you kick this off by giving us a little overview of your background? Sure. So, um as you mentioned, I'm the founder and CEO of Nochoy, which is a collaborative notes app for you and your team. And um you know, we were really inspired uh when I was working at LinkedIn when we realized that, you know, 90% of institutional knowledge that we um kind of have in an organization never makes it to a searchable Docker wiki. And so we wanted to really build a new tool that was super productive in terms of making it easy for you to capture and share information with your team. And that's how we came up with Nochoy. Um it's free to try, so I would encourage everyone to check it out. But to take a step back, I wanted to start kind of in in the beginning of my career. I actually started uh my career at Microsoft as a product manager there. And what was unique about my experience at Microsoft was I actually got to work on a brand new product at Microsoft. um which was very typical you know most people were working on say like version 12 of office or version 15 of windows 
Um, but instead, I worked in a division called Visual Studio, which were developer tools, but we built a brand new version of Visual Studio designed for database professionals instead of application uh, developers. And that was so exciting because we kind of built all these new concepts for database developers. We took these ideas that we had for application developers, like unit testing and refactoring and brought them to database developers. And that whole idea of building brand new innovation from scratch, frankly, got me hooked that I've actually spent the rest of my career um, always focused on new product innovation, but interesting enough, I've done that both in large and small companies. So after Microsoft, I went on to start my first company. It was called Anywhere.fm. It was a web music player that allowed you to take your entire music collection and play it from the web. And so this is in 2006, so before the days of Spotify and RDO and Apple Music. But yeah, it was this great music player, um, so you could listen to your music in the office and share your music with friends. We ultimately sold that startup to another startup called iMeme. And iMeme ultimately uh, sold to MySpace and became MySpace Music. After that startup, I went on to incubate my next startup called Connected. And so the whole idea with Connected was it was contact management without the work. Think of it like a Plaxo 2.0 uh, kind of product. And uh, what we did is we made it easy for you to aggregate all your contacts in one place. Um, so we took um, your contacts from email, your mobile devices, your social networks, aggregated and deduplicated them and made it so you had contacts without any data entry. But then we went further and really tried to make Connected act as your personal assistant. So it would tell you things like, hey, remember to uh, congratulate Bob on, on his job change or remember to say happy birthday to Alicia uh, today. Or, you know, Mike was just mentioned the news. Maybe you should drop him a line. Or even things like, hey, you know, we noticed you haven't talked to John in, in six months. Maybe it's time to get back in touch. And so we really wanted to be your kind of personal relationship assistant. That startup was also acquired, uh, in this case, by LinkedIn. And we went on to bring a lot of this functionality to LinkedIn. So if you've ever gotten an email from LinkedIn about a job change, a birthday, people mention the news, you know, that, that was all our team uh, working on that. And one of the interesting things about Connected was our, our top customer segment was actually sales professionals. And so I told LinkedIn that we should really go deep on sales professionals um, because it's a, it's a segment that a lot of LinkedIn users used, but at the time, LinkedIn hadn't really built anything specific for them. So I went on to incubate LinkedIn Sales Navigator, which was a brand new premium subscription dedicated to sales professionals. And I was lucky enough to help grow that business to over 200 million in revenue before I left, grew it to a team of about 500 people. And uh, since I left, it's gone on to grow much bigger. And obviously now, as I mentioned, I'm, I'm working on NoChoy. It's awesome. So it's interesting, you know, let's go all the way back to the beginning of that story. You talked about Microsoft and in the, in the case of your experience at Microsoft, right, it was a brand new product like you talked about. So talk to me about how that experience makes it much different at Microsoft, right, with a brand new, more or less brand new product uh, and being able to put, so to speak, you know, your mark on it versus maybe an established product that's been there for a long, long time, right? How, how is being a product manager at Microsoft different in those different types of environments? Yeah, you know, the role is very different um, when you're kind of working on a brand new product innovation, because regardless of whether you're at a large company or at a small company, when you're working on a new product, you still have to find product market fit. 
uh, for this new product. And sure, you have the benefit of a large corpus of users that are going to be kind of giving you a distribution advantage. Um, but finding product market fit is never easy, um, regardless of whether you're doing it at a large established tech company or a small startup. But, you know, what's exciting about it and what made me fall in love with it is, is kind of the reason I got into tech in the first place, because you're really focused on bringing net new innovation to the world. And I remember at the time when, when we were doing this, um, I got to meet these researchers at IBM that were even thinking about kind of what the future of database development even looked like. And, you know, I would invite them to Microsoft to discuss, you know, if we were to take some of these ideas that you've come up with, what would it look like if we were to productify it? And, um, you know, we came up with these concepts of database unit testing, database refactoring that no one had really ever done before in the database world. And we, we borrowed from the application development world to come up with that. And so this idea of like synthesizing new ideas and really kind of bringing something net new to the world was so exciting for me and something that I knew I was kind of passionate about. But what you realize is the skill set's very different. You know, you're really getting deep in customer empathy, customer discovery. You're iterating very quickly on prototypes and concepts before you ever get into kind of the weeds of launching a product. And, and actually, it, it's an environment where it tends to be fairly data light um, in terms of when you're coming up with that product innovation relative to the experience of actually continuing to grow an existing product where you have a lot of data inputs that you can use to optimize it, that you often got a lot of direct customer feedback that is usually working on a bunch of low risk things that can likely move the needle on the product. And so you see a very different contrast in these, in these roles. And what you find is that most companies have both roles and, and you really got to think about which one you want, want to take on. You know, I describe it as the role I was in at Microsoft is really a role of a product innovator. But then you have sort of the classic, um, you know, product builder, which is really the one that is ultimately building features for existing products. And the third role I often find in tech companies is really the tuner, which is the person that's optimizing existing experiences, whether it's growth flows or kind of, uh, you know, monetization flows. And all three of these roles typically exist. And, you know, as you progress in your product role, you really want to understand kind of what part of it do you actually love? And for me, it's always been the product innovation. Yeah, that's interesting. I never really thought about it that way, you know, dividing this up into three different categories of product managers, you know, innovators, builders, tuners. Uh, it's an interesting perspective to think about that. And, and I can see how uh, a company could need each of those types maybe in larger quantities as a product line matures, right? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it was interesting at LinkedIn, um, you know, when I was taking on the uh, sales navigator role to incubate this new product, you know, the head of the business uh, told me that, um, you know, ran all of the monetization products at LinkedIn. He's like, hey, we have a ton of these great sort of GM, MBA types that are great at taking a business and really optimizing it and creating incredible extraction of value from kind of the, the existing product, um, you know, whether it's internationalizing it, whether it's really doubling down on the customer segments that's working. So that playbook LinkedIn was really great at. But what they realized was that when you're, when you're trying to find a new product innovation, that's a very different skill set. And what they saw in me was the opportunity to really focus on kind of that product innovation piece because I brought that to bear from my previous experience. And, and, and surprisingly, I hadn't had much kind of GM style experience of kind of managing a PL of a large business. So that was the learning opportunity for me. And so at LinkedIn, we really thought about for any given role, 
what were we looking for in the leader? Was it an innovator? Was it a builder? Was it a tuner? And what I realized is that that language um, is, is something that all product managers should think about. And all companies are starting to uh, think about which role do they need depending on the phase of the company that they're at or the phase of each project is at. Um, but it's helpful to think about that in your own career as well. Yeah. Do you, do you think uh, companies do a good job of this, about differentiating between the different types of product managers or product leaders they need based upon the maturity of their product? Or do you think this is, is something that you know we could see a lot of improvement in product leadership? Definitely, we can see a lot of improvement in it. And I think the challenge right now is um, that kind of specialization of product roles, I'd say, is pretty early and immature in the industry. And so kind of the, the builder tuner, you know, um, innovator model is just kind of mind nomenclature on it. And I think as an industry, we really need to kind of standardize uh, what these roles look like. And I think the reality is everyone is sort of kind of amorphously talking about these same roles. Um, people understand, for example, that a growth role, you know, looks very different than kind of a core product role. And, and we're starting to see some specialized skill sets kind of being born around the, uh, the growth role. And, and I think we are starting to see kind of startup uh, product management best practices, really talking about these ideas of product market fit and early customer discovery, which is really the skill set of the innovator. I think the challenge that we're seeing in the industry is not realizing that every established tech company has all three roles at the exact same time, that there's plenty of innovators at the largest established tech companies. You know, it's basically the difference of, you know, working on, say, Oculus at Facebook versus working on Newsfeed. You know, Newsfeed needs a lot of tuners. Um, Oculus needs a lot of innovators, uh, but they're all at the exact same company. And so I think we're still maturing uh, in this. And, and I really encourage leaders when they're hiring to really think about which one they really need for the specific role and to start having conversations with their direct reports on, you know, what is the career path of the folks on your team? Have they had experiences across all three of these segments? Um, if not, do they want to kind of have those experiences? And when I mentor product managers, I always tell them early in your career, try to get a taste of all three of these. Um, because ultimately, you're going to fall in love with one of them, but don't let it be simply because that's the only one you've ever experienced. And um, larger companies are great opportunities for this because they have all sorts of roles or even just projects that you can take on that can give you a taste of what each of these roles actually look like. Yeah, that's very interesting. I feel like we could, we could talk about this a lot more. But I wanted to jump into a little bit about some of the things you've written about in the past, which is you know, how people get into product management, the different roles they can take on, and maybe even a little bit of tips for their interviews. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think um, getting into product management is sort of a, a, an interesting one because I'd say there still isn't just one clear path that people take into a product management role. Um, you know, I wrote an essay talking about kind of the five paths that I see typically um, that people get their first kind of product management role in. You know, the first one is certainly a computer science uh, education from a uh, university and then translating into usually an associate product manager role at a larger tech company that has a kind of APM program. That's a pretty typical path. Another one is sort of uh, getting that computer science or any kind of engineering degree and ultimately getting an MBA and then going into kind of your first product management role. 
So I'd say those two are kind of the most common ones that you see for kind of entry level roles, but there's lots more. Um, you know, oftentimes a great way to get into product management is actually through an adjacent role that works with product managers. So maybe you're a designer working with a product manager or an engineer or a business operations person or a marketer. Now, through those experiences, you get exposure to what the product role looks like. Hopefully, you can build rapport with the product manager, and then you can leverage that to actually transition um, into a product management role. Um, you know, the, the last two paths you typically see is an entrepreneur who ultimately kind of decides to go into a larger tech company, given kind of the pervasiveness of um, their role at a startup, they often fit well into a product role that also has that breadth of responsibility. And finally, the last path I've seen is domain experts. And so what I mean by that is, you know, I've had a, a, a friend of mine that did a master's in education who ended up becoming a product manager at an ed tech company. Or I had a friend that was an MD that ended up becoming a product manager at a med tech company. And in those cases, they're bringing such deep domain expertise into bear um, at this company, at this tech company, and product ends up being the role that's kind of typical for it. So all of these are potential paths into kind of your first product management role. I'd say the mistake I most often see with product managers uh, that are trying to break into their first product role is, is often taking too much of a spray and pray approach where they kind of apply to maybe 50 different things, just hoping to land one role. And what I find is that when you don't have sort of depth of rigor around really trying to focus on one role and really trying to make that happen, it's going to be a long shot for you to actually get that role. And so when you're doing this well, you know, you're not only just pressing the apply button on LinkedIn or Indeed or your favorite site, but you're crafting sort of a very specific narrative on why you are the best person to like really work on this problem and why you're passionate about it. And you're even, even in your kind of initial reach out, giving suggestions and how the product could be better. Um, and you're bringing all that to bear in the interview, if you're lucky enough to get one, where you're kind of sharing your advice on how to do this well. And if you're just preparing the night before for this kind of interview, you're never going to have kind of that depth of knowledge that's really going to help uh, propel the company forward and really make you stand out. So I think that's sort of my kind of first, uh, you know, top interview tip for folks kind of breaking into the role. Yeah, I think we, we can't underemphasize that enough or overemphasize that enough. Uh, you know, it's, a, it's really impressive when someone comes in that has done their research, that has thoughts and ideas, you know, around a product that obviously they're, they're just interviewing for, as opposed to just having kind of a basic high-level viewpoint. Those, those details are really impressive. And if you're applying for 50 different jobs, there's just no possible way you can have that level of depth or, or have given that amount of thought to each individual company, right? Exactly. So if I, if I flip this around now, let's talk about, you know, what's your advice to product managers or product leaders that are hiring for their team? What qualities do you think matter the most? You know, how do you approach the interview? Do you do, you do homework, quote unquote? Yeah, you know, I'd say that, you know, my approach um, hasn't really been around uh, homework per se. But what I do really like doing is, is really establishing sort of a case style interview process. And you know, what is important is to really kind of come up with one case question that you can basically apply to every candidate. And so I did this uh, heavily at LinkedIn, you know, for example, just to give you kind of an idea of what a case question looks like, I'd ask you something like, okay, let's say LinkedIn um, is deciding to build a mobile app 
for career fairs at, at universities. And you know, every university has a career fair where students can come and meet potential employers, talk to employers about potential roles, even potentially apply for roles. So let's say you know, LinkedIn wanted to completely redo that entire experience and make it great with a mobile app. Let's talk about what that would look like. And so, you know, I basically pose that as a high level question. And then we go through sort of a series of questions. Um, so let's start talking about what's actually wrong with the career fair experience today and have them break down sort of the challenges of, of the career fair. You know, then I ask them, you know, what could, what could this mobile app do to make that experience better? It's another sort of problem solving to figure out how LinkedIn can solve those problems. And then we usually get into depth about, you know, maybe they tell me about some feature that they might build in the app, and then I might have them whiteboard or wireframe uh, that experience and sort of, you know, get a taste of their kind of design sense. Um, and finally, you know, when they're actually sort of thinking about rolling this out, I'll ask them, you know, what metrics do you want to instrument to make sure this thing, you know, looks like success and what do your goal metrics look like? And so through that one case interview, which usually takes about 20 to 25 minutes, I'm able to assess their ability to understand pain points and customer problems, their ability to problem solve and come up with creative solutions, their kind of design uh, thinking around building interfaces and kind of thinking through what's most important, as well as their kind of analytical proclivity. And I like that because I can pose this exact same question to junior and senior product managers and see sort of a depth of kind of understanding of product and the product role uh, through this one question. And so I think the, the first thing I always encourage product leaders to do is figure out what that question is and, and try to make it focused on your company and make it unique to your company because that's really going to lend itself well um, to really understanding kind of what matters um, when you're trying to understand kind of the, the, the capabilities of a, a given product manager. And, and I think the homework thing is interesting. Um, and I think um, there's some merit to it. But um, I actually find it really interesting to see what they can do on the spot, cold, without any preparation on this. And of course, I ask them lots of questions in addition to this on things that they've likely prepared about, um, their, their past experience, their ideas on how to improve a product like LinkedIn. Um, but this one's a great one to really kind of keep them on their toes and really kind of get at their core capabilities. Yeah, and at, at the same time, I, I guess if they've prepared, if you're asking a question about you know your your industry, your your company, they might have a, a little bit of depth of knowledge there that, that comes across as more impressive, right? Definitely, yeah. No, I think that's definitely true, and and I think it's easy to shine um, and show your depth of knowledge when you've really kind of done the rigor and and really know the products well. I'd say the the other piece I'd add, um, which I think is really important when you're hiring product managers is really to think about when it comes to your specific skill set as a manager and the skill set of the company that you're hiring into, what skills of that product manager do you feel are coachable versus not? And so, you know, I think this is really important because what you find is there's a lot of key uh, requirements and skills that product managers need to succeed, but some of them are coachable. And to the extent they're coachable, you don't have to get someone that's great at them out of the gate. But then there's other skills that you find that are really not coachable or not in any kind of meaningful time frame. So to make this concrete, um, you know, what I personally found at LinkedIn, for example, was that a base level of strong communication skills was very difficult to teach. 
Um, you needed people that had sort of a, a, a proclivity towards clear and concise communication as, as something they walked in the door with. Um, and, and I found that difficult to teach. That being said, Things like executive communication, that's easy to teach. Things like, you know, executive emails or kind of email etiquette, easy to teach. But that base level um, of strong communication is very difficult. Similarly, I found that, um, you know, LinkedIn is a company that was incredibly analytically rigorous. And I remember joining LinkedIn and thinking I was analytically rigorous and learning a whole new level of analytical rigor. But the reality is it was easier to learn once I got to LinkedIn because LinkedIn was so good at kind of that dimension. And so my bar is usually analytical proclivity, not necessarily analytical rigor. They don't have to be well-versed in all the nuances of different kinds of effects that happen when you are really into kind of, um, you know, A-B testing at scale with burn-in effects and all these kind of things that you learn when you actually see A-B tests at scale, but they do have to have a proclivity towards A-B testing. And so those are just two examples of skills where parts of them are coachable, but parts are not, and really assessing what are the parts that are not coachable and using that as the minimum bar for your hiring criteria. Talk to me a little bit more about what you see as coachable versus uncoachable. What other traits? Yeah, you know, I think um, it's interesting because um, I think um, passion and kind of energy of a product manager, I've also found that not to be coachable. If you're just a passionate, curious, energetic person, that is going to be something the entire team will benefit from. You know, product management is is a leadership role, any way you look at it, largely through influence without authority, but it's a leadership role. And, you know, all the fellow engineers, designers, uh, fellow product managers, marketers that you're working with, you know, ideally they're inspired by you. And if you're someone that has kind of base energy and passion and you exude that in most of your communication, that's going to work really well for you. Um, And I have tried to sort of encourage that in people and I've never been able to authentically get them to be more energetic or passionate. Um, I've certainly gotten them to do things that make them look more energetic and passionate, but it doesn't come from the energetic base. And so I think that becomes something that is also uncoachable um, that you really want to kind of make part of your kind of uh, core criteria. Another one is this sort of idea of being an infinite learner. Um, You know, I think in in a product role, you're constantly learning new things because you have to sort of, you know, play this role that's kind of in between all these other roles. And so you end up doing a little bit of everything and being an infinite learner to be able to kind of go in with this mindset that you can always learn what you need to learn, at least enough to be successful in it is something that's really important because, you know, that's also important for coachability. You want to make sure that they are coachable. And if they're an infinite learner, it means that they're likely coachable. And so when you're looking for evidence of an infinite learner, you're looking for examples of in their past where they picked up a new skill, not because they got a four-year degree in it, but because they were just interested, excited, and they had a skill that they wanted to learn and they found ways resourcefully and with hustle to learn that set of skills to at least become decent at it. And you want to kind of extract examples of those. And so those are some of the things that are, that are not coachable. On the coachable side, what I find actually is some of the hard skills we talk about product management are fairly coachable. Learning to um, write a good product spec is actually coachable as long as you have the base skills of strong communication. Learning to prioritize a roadmap 
that's definitely coachable. Um, you know, again, as long as you have sort of kind of base analytical uh, proclivity. And, and I think that's the interesting part where a bunch of these kind of skill sets that we think about you're doing as a day-to-day basis are more coachable when a lot of the more kind of base attributes of someone are the ones that are not. Hmm. That's very interesting. It, it leads us into something you wrote about too, this idea of like being a compelling product manager, right? And the art it takes and talking about the, the breakdown between substance and style. Can you summarize that essay for our listeners and talk about the conclusions you came to? Yeah, you know, it was a really interesting insight that kind of drew me to this. You know, I've mentored a lot of product managers over the years, either through directly managing them at LinkedIn or, um, you know, just kind of out in the broader um, product management community. And what I started to notice was that um, a bunch of product managers kept hitting this wall where they were doing kind of the, the, the hard skills of product management quite well. And the hard skills is what I call the substance of product management. These are these things we just talked about, things like prioritizing a roadmap, things like um, writing a great product spec, things like analytical rigor and kind of running a great process. And you found that they felt they were doing this well and even objectively they were doing this well, but they still weren't progressing in their career the way they'd like to. And what they were noticing was that other people were kind of great at this and, and they were kind of doing those same skills the same way, yet they were progressing very well. And as I kind of dug into this, I noticed the same thing where that the best product managers actually not only did the hard skills of product management well, but what they actually did was the soft skills of of product management well as well. And those soft skills are things like executive management. It's things like influence while authority. It's things like building rapport with the entire kind of cross-functional team that you're working with. And I realized these soft skills actually matter an incredible amount. And actually the great product managers aren't even just good at this, but they actually spend a lot of time in their day-to-day role in product management in this. And that's when I kind of started to describe this as the substance and style of product management. 60% of your time as a great product manager is focused on the substance, the hard skills, but then 40% of your time, which is a large chunk of time, is, is focused on the style of product management, which is the soft skills. And these matter just as much as kind of the core skill set for you to be really great at this product management role. And like I said, most of this is because product management is a leadership role. You're kind of working through other people to be successful and you can't do it all alone. And you need sort of that influence to to, to really work. And as I studied this and kind of looked at all these different skills that you needed, these soft skills, what I realized was that underneath all of these soft skills was really kind of one core skill, which is this kind of art of being compelling and making a compelling argument. When you can make a compelling argument, when you can convince people of your ideas, that makes it easy then to influence them with that authority. It becomes easy then to manage up through executive management. It becomes easy to actually spend time with your team and get them to understand where you're coming from. And so what I realized, that was the core skill set you needed to really up-level your game and start to be great at these uh, style elements. And so when you think about making a compelling argument, um, it's something that you know, is worth spending time thinking about how do you become great at that? And so there's a couple of key dimensions here. When you're making a compelling argument, you have 
the substance of the argument, which is the merits of what you're arguing in the first place, which is where most people, frankly, are already spending their time. But then the two other dimensions to really think about is the target audience. So when you're making an argument, you're trying to convince someone of something. And who is that person? Maybe it's an executive. Maybe it's your fellow engineer. And what proclivities do they have that are likely going to make them likely to, you know, be convinced. And now what you want to do is pick your style element to decide which style element are you going to use to make a compelling argument that is likely to resonate with that audience. And so this is the key part where you're not just thinking about the merits of your argument, but you're thinking about your approach to the argument. And and that's that style piece. And I call it the um, elements of style of a compelling argument. And, you know, in, in the blog post, I go in and detail six different elements of style. I'll only talk about, um, you know, one of them here to illustrate it. But, you know, you can choose which one of these is likely going to be the best to make a compelling argument. So let's take a quick example. Um, framing is kind of one of my favorite um, ways of making a compelling argument. And the best way to think about framing is through photography. Uh, when you see a photo that a photographer has, has taken, what they do is they frame the photo for you. They show it to you in a very specific lens and a very specific light in a very specific direction and a very specific uh, picture. It's because they want you to see the image in the exact same way that they saw it. And in fact, what they're doing is they're framing their view on that topic. When you're making an argument, you have an opportunity to frame for the actual person who's listening to your argument, you know, the way you want them to see the world. And you get to do that in the narrative that you describe the problem as. And you want to be careful to think about how do you want to present this in the best light to frame it in a way that's likely to be convincing for your target audience. And so that's just one example of the style element you might use. There's others like social proof and goal seek and inception um, and, and sort of a citation using data. And so these are all tools you want to have in your tool set when you're making a compelling argument. So it's worthwhile for product managers to realize to be great at their role, it's not just about learning the hard skills that you're doing every day in product management, but to really spend time mastering the soft skills. And to really get great at those soft skills, you want to get great at being compelling and making a compelling argument. And encourage people to spend time really thinking about that the next time they're in a situation where they're trying to convince a peer, a manager, an executive um, of something in their product role. That's awesome. And, and we'll provide a link in, in the write-up from uh, this podcast so people can check out uh, the blog post that you're mentioning and get some more ideas there. But uh, let's turn our focus now to, to feedback and let's talk about continuous feedback, feedback loops. You, I think you talked about at some point this idea of a feedback river. Can you talk about what that is and how it helps product managers and maybe some mistakes to avoid when establishing a, a feedback system or record? Yeah, you know, th- this whole idea came to me when, you know, we were working on, um, you know, NoChoy and early on when you're kind of before you launch the product, you're doing a lot of customer discovery. You're spending a lot of time with customers. We, you know, we even have a list of about a hundred interviews that we did with various uh, potential users um, about kind of their challenges and document collaboration and, and note taking and spent a lot of time on that, which was great. But then what happened is we launched the product. And once we launched the product, you know, we had a million fires that we were constantly working on, bugs that needed to be fixed, feature requests that were coming in. We started back 
in terms of what customers were asking for or looking at the metrics, we were no longer getting that depth of really customer understanding. And while we could have easily gone and done these kind of deep usability studies again, what we realized was these usability studies are something that are very time consuming, um, something you typically only do at best maybe once a month, more likely once a quarter. And it results in you kind of getting deep feedback very infrequently. And so what I wanted to do was develop a system where we're constantly and continuously getting feedback from our customers. And so that sort of led to this idea of kind of the feedback river. And and sort of the inspiration for it was, um, you know, I'm an avid Twitter user and I use it every day. And, you know, at any given day, I can open up Twitter and tap into sort of the zeitgeist of tech. You know, what's going on? What are the hottest topics? You know, what are people talking about in my industry? But what's fascinating is that if you try to do that within your company, you want to tap into the zeitgeist of the customer voice. There's no easy way to do it. Like, sure, you can go and kind of look at customer service requests and whatnot, but you can't just quickly tap in. It always ends up being this big process. And so what we developed uh, for NoJoy was this feedback river, which kind of recreated that beautiful Twitter stream, but for the customer voice um, of no choice customers. And so what we did was we actually created a Slack channel and uh, it was called feedback. And what we did is we started auto publishing to it many different sources of feedback. So for example, uh, anytime anyone signs up for NoJoy, after 14 days, they get a NPS survey in the product that asks them, you know, how likely you to rate this, recommend this product to a friend or colleague, and then get an open-ended question asking them, why did they get, give us the score? Those stream in in real time into this uh, feedback river. And the beauty of that is that in real time, we're seeing every single day new NPS results. And the verbatims are amazing because people tell us why they either love the product or why they don't like the product. Um, and we're getting that true voice of customer on a daily basis. And what's exciting about it is someone mentions something, we often respond in real time and tell them, hey, actually that feature you thought didn't exist really exists. So it's a great kind of customer touch point as well. But we have lots of other sources of feedback feeding into this. So for example, anytime you cancel your account within NoChoy, we have this reason field that we ask you to fill out. And, you know, some people do, some people don't. Um, but when they do, that gets streamed directly to our feedback river. So you can see exactly why people are telling us they're canceling the product. We've also built, uh, you know, a, a contact us form and a feedback form. All of those responses actually feed back into the feedback river. And they still go into our customer service system so that we know that they get responded to, but the feedback river opens up that information and makes it accessible to anyone on the team that wants access to that feedback river. You know, we even do things like um, have a features page on our website that lets anyone upvote features or add new features that they want. Anytime someone actually upvotes a feature, adds a new feature, comments on a feature, all of that also goes into our feedback river. And so the feedback river has been something where, you know, now when I'm in the coffee line at Starbucks, I don't open up Twitter, I open up my feedback river and I can get kind of a real time voice of what customers are saying about NoJoy um, and the product. And that's incredibly helpful because now you're getting depth of understanding of your customer in real time without any work at all. I didn't have to commission a usability study. I didn't have to send out people to go make that happen. And certainly it's no substitute for usability studies. You should still do them, but it's an incredible complement to it. And it's even a more incredible complement to the daily dashboards that you're looking at, which become great for understanding what's going on, but will never tell you why. 
And this gives you that why. And I always encourage every product team to really create a similar feedback river and get anyone on the team that really cares about the customer to see it, not just the product managers, the designers, the engineers, the marketers. And it's so important because it really makes it so that, um, you know, you can constantly see what your customers are saying in real time and you no longer feel disconnected from that that voice of customer. And it helps you in your head when you're having internal meetings, hearing something, an idea that people have, validate it very quickly on whether customers are saying it as well. That's awesome. I, I like that feedback river. I know we do a lot integrating NPS directly and sentiment directly into Slack and there's a lot more you know, that can be done to turn it into that, that river, so to speak. Uh, I can also see this river turning into rapids, right? You, product managers get feedback from a variety of sources, sales, customers, engineers, and everyone's got an opinion and thinks their idea is the next best feature. So how do you take this feedback and how do you prioritize what features to ship? That's a great question. You know, I think what's interesting about product management is that product management is really this combination of art and science. Um, you know, there's a lot of pe- parts of it that are really kind of scientific in nature, you know, whether it's running an A-B test or uh, various aspects of that. Um, but there's actually a lot of aspects of it that, that are really kind of the art of product management. And I put this idea of prioritizing a roadmap into that idea of kind of the art of product management. And, you know, what's interesting about it is that oftentimes when I talk to product managers, they're looking for this sort of simple formula on how do they actually prioritize a roadmap. You know, for example, like I mentioned, we have this feedback features page, which allows people to vote on features. And, you know, you can imagine just taking that list and taking the most upvoted features and, you know, building, building that in prioritized order. And I'll tell you, that's, that's a bad way of doing it. That's a poor way of actually prioritizing a roadmap. And so that's where this art piece really kind of comes in. And I found that the best way to think about prioritizing a roadmap is to really think about it in kind of three different buckets. Um, The first bucket is customer obsession. And so this bucket is all about if you attune yourself to what your customers are saying, you really think about if you simply built what your customers wanted, what would that be? And that really takes advantage of the feedback river we just talked about. It also takes advantage of that features page I was describing or whatever feedback system or record you have that catalogs all the various feedback you're getting and sort of those counts of it. And so that becomes one incredibly important input into your roadmap. And so kind of what comes out of that is a sort of a prioritized list of either features that your customers are asking for or maybe problems that your customers are perceiving in the product. And so that's that's great to have. But then you want to make sure you're looking at these two other lenses as well. The second lens is really business obsession. You know, when you think about what you're trying to accomplish as a business, you're really trying to maximize shareholder value, which is all about maximizing kind of the bottom line in terms of income for the company, which really kind of boils down into kind of this equation that every company realizes. They have to acquire customers. They have to engage and retain those customers. And then ultimately, they have to monetize those customers and upsell those customers. And so you can break down your business into these kind of business objectives and these business metrics. And you can see, how are you doing against each of these? I always break it down to that acquisition, engagement, and monetization. And what you want to then do is come up with benchmarks. What does great look like in each of these categories? And what you often find early on in business is that, you know, you're still struggling with acquisition and engagement um, and getting people to be retained. 
But, you know, the reality is that your focus should really be on that engagement and retention piece, because if you even did spend time on acquisition, it doesn't matter if you have a leaky bucket and you're not retaining users. And so that business obsession sort of helps you realize where in the business you should actually be prioritizing based on the metrics of what you're seeing against your benchmarks of what success look like. And that kind of lends itself to understanding, okay, we should really be focusing on say engagement and retention right now, because that's our kind of biggest burning fire. And let's come up with a set of roadmap items that really prioritize what could we possibly do to solve for engagement and retention. And so now you're starting to see some of the challenges of these multiple lenses, because there is tension between the customer acquisition, the customer obsession and the uh, business obsession. So to make that concrete, most of your customers are going to be asking for features that are related to engagement. Um, but they're rarely going to ask for features related to acquisition, or they're rarely going to ask for features that are going to help you monetize better. And so you're going to have this tension between your business lens and your, and your customer lens. That holds true with the third lens as well. The third lens is your vision obsession. And so the vision obsession is this whole idea that you're building a product with this vision in mind. And, you know, even when we talk about NoChoy, we feel like we're at about 25% of where we ultimately want to be in our vision. And so we have all these ideas of where we want to take the product. It's important to remember those. And at certain points, you want to think about is now the time to take the next step in really deepening our uh, path towards our mission and vision. Maybe that means taking on a new feature area that you know, you've been holding off on. Uh, maybe it means like launching into this new product space that's really important for you to ultimately realize your vision. And what's important here is that you'll realize again, there's tension between your vision and these other lenses. So for example, most of your customers are going to be telling you about features that are sort of here and now that like they're using your product for a specific use case. They want this one thing to help solve for that problem. They're not thinking 10 steps ahead of, you know, what could this ultimately be? And so you're rarely going to get your business obsession nor your customer obsession to really speak to that vision obsession. And so you want to be thinking about that independently and thinking about um, when it makes sense to really take that on. And so once you've kind of put together, you know, sort of these prioritized lists of what would it look like if you prioritize customer obsession, business obsession, and vision obsession, now you have to do the hard work of coalescing that into a, a single roadmap. And, and there's no really easy answer there. A lot of that is gut and intuition, but you have kind of these three lists to work with. And this exercise I just described is actually what we do every quarter when we're prioritizing the roadmap for No Joy. And we go through and go through uh, making lists of each of these three and then coalescing it into our quarterly roadmap. That's awesome. I like that approach. Let's talk about, you know, you've been a product manager and you mentioned a mentor for many years. You've been working in Silicon Valley for, you know, over a decade now. What's something you wish you had known when you started in product management? Probably the biggest thing I'd say is actually the value of mentorship in product management. Because product management is both art and science, uh, this isn't something you just kind of read a book or read blog posts and become an expert product manager. It's something that you, is experiential in your learning and something you actually really have to experience um, to get good at. But what I found is the biggest accelerant to experiential learning is having an incredible mentor. 
And um, I've been fortunate to have um, a great set of mentors in my career. But I'd say, honestly, I was, I sort of stumble upon these guys more so than being proactively seeking them out. And I think it's really important to do that. I think the reason is because when you have a great mentor, you can take to them very specific situations and circumstances you're in and use them as a sounding board to hear another opinion of how they might go about tackling this problem. And it could be anything from this question of prioritizing a roadmap. It could be things like I'm struggling to really, you know, build rapport with my engineering partner. It could be things like, you know, career progression and thinking about the next steps of what you want to explore. All of these are great questions that you want to take to a trusted partner. And when you think about that mentor, there's many angles to look at. One is certainly your manager can be a great mentor. And when you can find a great manager, it's worth doing. You know, when I took on the uh, sales navigator role at LinkedIn, I took it on not only because I was excited about continuing to work on new product innovation, but I was excited to work with David Hahn, who was head of all of LinkedIn's modernization products and, you know, kind of grew up with the company and um, had become well known in the organization as an incredible leader. And I wanted that leadership and mentorship lessons that I could get from David Hahn. And it was well worth it because I could take to him very specific problems and situations I was dealing with. And he ended up being kind of a great sounding board for all of that. But it doesn't just have to be your manager. Um, It can certainly be another leader in the organization that you really respect, that you can convince to take some time on uh, for you. Or it could be people outside of your company um, in kind of the broader ecosystem of product community. And I think it's, it's, it's important to seek this out. The thing I'll caution you is that it's not as simple as going up to someone and asking them, you know, will they be your mentor? Uh, Because it's one of these things you want to build rapport on both sides. You want to make sure the mentor has rapport and interest and excitement kind of working with you and that you feel like you gel with the style of the mentor. And so what's better is to go to specific people that you think might be great mentors and pose a very specific question or problem, you know, ask for a 30 minute phone call or, you know, take them to coffee and kind of use that experience to gauge kind of mutual interest in kind of continuing that dialogue. Maybe then down the line, ask them in a few months again, if they'd be willing to do it um, on another one-off situation Um, and make sure you follow up with kind of what happened and kind of what you experienced and how helpful their learning was. And then maybe that third time you ask them, would they be willing to be a mentor? And I think this is a more realistic path You know, I can't tell you how many emails I get um, that kind of ask me to kind of be a mentor without all that context and without that understanding, which is just very tough to do versus the mentorship relationships I have taken on have looked way more like what I'm describing um, as the process to make it very real. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, you want to make sure that there's a fit on both sides and it's going to be a fruitful relationship and also that there's a natural progression to an ask so to speak. Exactly. Exactly. So tell me a little bit about what you see in the future. Like if you think about upcoming trends and product management, you know, is there something we all should be thinking about? Yeah. You know, what's interesting is uh, I see like one particular trend that I personally believe actually is a bad trend uh, in product management. And, you know, what that is, is that um, historically product managers um, have a lot of core responsibilities in their role. Uh, And the way I usually talk about that is 
Um, you know, a product manager is responsible for the vision of their product, the design of the product, not specifically the uh, UI design, but kind of the features and the roadmap, uh, the strategy of their product, trying to figure out how you're going to win against the market, and finally, the execution. And, and really, execution is incredibly important because regardless of the fact that you have a great strategy or a great roadmap, unless you can execute, none of that is going to become a reality. And so execution is really important. And it's one of these things where I think product managers can have the biggest impact in the role when they actually spend a lot of time on execution because you'll have more opportunities to ship more software if you're shipping faster. You'll have more opportunities to iterate on all your ideas if you're making decisions faster. So that execution part really matters. Unfortunately, there's a trend right now which is resulting in, in some product management organizations deciding to separate some of the project management responsibilities outside of product management into dedicated project managers. And um, what, what the, the rationale for this is that, hey, product managers have so much on their plate. You know, I just described four different dimensions that they need to solve for that let's take some of this burden off of them offload it to project managers that de deal with the day-to-day, -day, maybe scrum meetings or status meetings or trying to understand where we are in terms of progress and remove the product manager from that so they can focus on these other dimensions of product management, which is already a handful of work. So rationally, I get the argument, but I think there's a big, big challenge with it, which is when you're removing the product manager from the execution loop, they stop being involved in optimizing that execution loop. And it turns out that they're in the best position because they are so well-versed in the strategy and the vision of the product to really be an important voice in optimizing uh, that execution. And so, um, you know, there's a lot of things, for example, that happen on a day-to-day -day basis. A design question comes up that becomes an execution bottleneck. The project manager then is sort of waiting to kind of get everyone in a room to discuss this. When a product manager is involved, they can quickly get the folks in the room, make a snap judgment in a call um, to quickly unblock execution and keep moving. And so it's one of these fascinating things where initially it may feel like you're increasing the capabilities of a product manager by removing the execution responsibility from him, but I actually think you're doing a disservice for the entire role. And if you're feeling like the product manager can't scale, I think the solution is to hire more project, uh, product managers as opposed to dividing the responsibility up. And, and so that's sort of sort of a negative trend I'm seeing that I personally um, have not been a fan of. Yeah, I, I would agree 100% too. And you, you want the product managers involved in those trade-off decisions. And sometimes this adds a, adds a layer of overhead or maybe they're not involved at all uh, in some of those trade-off decisions. Uh, and it, it affects everything. It affects those three other areas. Exactly. Yeah. And like that involvement is so important um, to kind of help, you know, just keep the ball moving forward in, a, in an efficient way. Yeah. So a um, couple final questions more about Sachin than anything else, but curious to know what, what your favorite product is. You know, uh, one thing that I've really kind of become obsessed with lately um, is this idea that software can really create an emotional reaction in all of us. Um, and, and, you know, so much of us think about software as kind of productivity tools that help us solve these core day-to-day -day challenges, but software is, is, is kind of more than that. And when it can create an emotional reaction in you, 
it's just amazing what bits can do. And so that I've been really fascinated with that idea of creating an emotional reaction. And so, you know, one piece of software that I've really gotten into that I think does this incredibly well is an app on my uh, mobile phone called RunKeeper. And so I've recently really gotten into fitness and, and running has kind of been the mainstay of, of my exercise routine. I, I recently just ran a half marathon for the first time, but I've used RunKeeper all along the way to keep me productive and motivated. And what's great about RunKeeper is it has all the obvious features you'd expect from a fitness tracking app. Things like recording my distance, telling me my average pace anytime I go running. All of that is fine and good and makes it a good app. But what makes it a great app is how it really does encourage and motivate me to do better. Um, They've come up with all of these somewhat cheesy badges that they give you all the time to kind of keep you motivated. Um, Some are basic ones like, hey man, that's your fastest, you know, four mile run that you've ever done. Or they tell you like you have now, you know, run around the entire island of like, you know, Kauai in terms of the distance of miles that you've run around. And, And it's all these sort of lightweight motivational things to kind of keep you going. You know, another fun thing they do is that they have this, um, timer in the app that goes off. You know, I set it to every two minutes when I'm running to give you details of your pace. And they let you choose the voice of of that um, uh, kind of alert. And, um, you know, they have sort of a basic one, but then they have some really fun ones where they have this like drill sergeant one who comes in every two minutes, gives you your pace details, but then just sort of like yells at you. And it's kind of like, you know, you, you, you run like a hyena, like through the, the forest. And he's like, don't worry, that's a good thing. And um, it's just entertaining and motivating. And that ability of software to do that um, has been really kind of fascinating and, and something I try to study because I aspire for, you know, apps I build like no choice to kind of elicit an emotion. And, and that's sort of why RunKeeper is kind of my current favorite app. Yeah. I mean, in particular, if it elicits, you know, feelings of joy or delight as opposed to angst and pain, right? Yeah. Uh, we want to focus on that. So, yeah, and I, I think... I think that's an awesome thing to think about when you're building products is even if you're building enterprise software, there's things you can do that delight your users, that give them an emotional response. And I'm super happy whenever I see products doing that. That's awesome. So one final question for you today, Sachin, three words to describe yourself. Uh, You know, I think I'll go with uh, an infinite learner. You know, I think Reid Hoffman kind of uh, coined that term for me and kind of explained that concept to me of this idea that, um, you know, know, he was talking about in the best entrepreneurs of this. I think it's true for all the best product managers as well. Um, They're folks that are infinitely curious, infinitely looking to learn and constantly motivated by learning. And I think when I think about kind of managing my career and, and kind of my own growth, the most important thing to me has always been putting myself in situations where I can continue to learn and grow. And, and it's really kind of the only thing I really think is sort of important about who I am, not the specific skills I have today, but the fact that I'm excited and, and curious about constantly growing in my career and, and in life. Awesome. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This has been Product Love. Thank you for tuning into this episode. Check out the rest of our articles and interviews on productcraft.com an online magazine by and for product people.